For today's episode, I am presenting an interview with Paul Harrison, the director of the tax clinic for Ladder Up, which was formerly the Center for Economic Progress in Chicago, Illinois. He brings a wealth of experience to this interview, so please enjoy. Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, the podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics, focuses on tax controversy work, and looks at related issues in tax news. I'm your host, William Schmidt, the director of the Low-Income Taxpayer Clinic at Kansas Legal Services. Welcome, Paul Harrison, the director of the tax clinic with Ladder Up, and I've been looking a little bit finding some information about you online, and uh, you have some experience at uh, a couple of different clinics and and actually kind of moved around the country. So I was curious for one thing, do you have any thoughts on how taxes affect people in different parts of the country from, from your experience, what different regions where you've worked at? That's an interesting question. I started as the clinician at a brand new clinic at uh, Pine Tree Legal Assistance in in Maine. And I worked out of the Bangor office for about five years. And that was, Maine is almost entirely rural. And um, I think when they started the program, they thought it would be a very small kind of referral-based program because the usual sort of thought, how can low-income people have tax problems? And, you know, there won't be very many. And I started in 2001, and there were already 16 clients waiting for me. And it it grew exponentially from there. I think, and, and then I moved to um, Center for Community Tax Law Project in Richmond, Virginia, in 2006, and was there for another five years before I came to Chicago at uh, what was at that, that time called uh, Center for Economic Progress, and which now is called uh, Ladder Up. And I think what there there is um, you know tremendous difference I think between uh, I think at the rock bottom level between rural poverty and urban poverty. People in rural uh, communities in rural locations don't have access to a lot of the support mechanisms that people in urban areas do. I think you notice probably in your own practice, the further you get away from Kansas City, you begin to see differences in the ways that people cope and the ways that that people get by. I think that it's more difficult, I think, in rural, rural areas for taxpayers to find FIDA programs to help them file their tax returns, and I think there is a great deal more reliance on word of mouth for information to circulate as far as what kinds of services are available. In urban areas, I think people have more access to both information and to services, but I I think the problems that taxpayers face tend to be you know, very much the same. You know, we see people with collection issues um, primarily these days. In past years, we've seen, you know, lots of clients with, and and we're seeing it now with the EIP 
um, clients whose uh, dependents are being claimed by someone else or who in fact themselves are being claimed as a dependent by someone else. So there's, there's some, you know, similarity in, in the types of problems, but I think, you know, the, the differences in, in rural urban access to services are probably the biggest thing that, that, that I see. Okay. And with the different clinics, you've seen both looks like the, the legal aid world and the standalone not-for-profit do you have any thoughts on on some of the differences between those um i think you know the biggest difference is is in the legal services environment you have a bench you have people in the same office as you are who you know no social security no child support no divorce and separation no housing kinds of problems and 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 of course the tax problem is always the last problem that brings clients into any kind of legal aid. With Community Tax Law Project and with Center for Economic Progress Ladder Up, we've had to go outside to other organizations to build partnerships, to build relationships with other kinds of organizations, which work, but just you know are a little bit more difficult. The, the, on the on the upside, though, you know, at Community Tax Law Project, tax LITC was the only thing that we did, and that was kind of a blessing. And uh, Center for Economic Progress Ladder Up runs uh, a VITA program, um, which is a tremendous advantage to have you know the the VITA program in the same shop, as it were, with the tax clinic because there's Know, tremendous correspondence between the two programs. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. That in in my legal aid organization, I get referrals from the other attorneys, but I am sure within your Vita organization at at Ladder Up that they refer quite a bit of cases over to you as well. It, it works both ways, William, because. When we have taxpayers who need tax returns done, if they're VITA, in scope for VITA, then we just have the, the VITA, our VITA program works year round. So they do the returns when we need them done for our clients, or at least that has been the case until the, the recent crisis where they're, they're just ramping up their virtual VITA program right now. And we get a lot of referrals from other legal aid organizations in the same way that you would get them from other attorneys in your in your organization. So how how are things with the coronavirus and, and some different programs being being shut down or, or temporarily set aside for for you and the the Vita organization? You know, what, what have you seen recently? Uh, well, well um, the VITA program has been working diligently and has just started doing returns again remotely. VITA had to do some rule changes to allow taxpayers to make arrangements to have their returns done without coming in to a physical location in person. And, of course, the, the program was, was hampered by the fact that um, we've worked out a 
libraries, schools, colleges, all kinds of buildings that shut down so that we had to stop taking in client clients. The clinic was able to move not seamlessly, but pretty smoothly into a remote operation. Had We had been using, uh, organizationally, LadderUp had been using uh, Microsoft 65 for uh, at least a year before the coronavirus struck. So we were already set up to have our important files and, and on SharePoint and have it cloud-based. We simply needed to move equipment into our homes. So the only thing that we've really stopped doing in, in the, from the clinic's point of view has been the live education events and, and outreach events. Uh, Ladder Up has formed a coalition with half a dozen other nonprofits in the Chicago area to bring together different organizations and, and their strengths to assist taxpayers with the EIP, you know, starting with how to get my payment, what's happened to my payment, but also assisting people, some of the other organizations, uh, assisting people with their housing and, you know, other emergency kinds of related needs. Ladder Up continues to provide tax assistance and now is adding in tax preparation assistance. So it's, it's been kind of an exciting period of time from the point of view of not nonprofit organizations and legal aid organizations coming together to address what you know is clearly a, a you know a nationwide kind of crisis. Okay, you had also mentioned to me that that you're interested in sharing your thoughts on the EIP that has been sent out to deceased taxpayers. And so I was, I was curious what thoughts you have on the topic. Well, as, as, as it happened, my mother passed away in February. And you know, just before things shut down, and she had not yet filed her 2019 tax return, but did receive the, the EIP payment probably in, in early, mid-April. And of course, this all happened before there was any announcement from uh, Secretary Mnuchin. And I think um, you know, my, my thoughts are in looking at the language of uh, 6428. I, I think a deceased person still meets the, um, the definition of an eligible individual. And of course, a, a deceased person you know, still has to file a 2019 tax return and uh, we'll need to file a uh, final return for decedent in 2021 for, for tax year 2020. So I think um, the, the announcement from the secretary doesn't really have a basis in the statute. And, um, and so it seems to me that, you know, this is, this is a good time to, to challenge that ruling and I think my family and I happen to be in a position to do that. So that's kind of where where I've been thinking that you know the, the language in, in the statute seems to say that a deceased person files his or her final return and accounts for the credit 
which does not go below zero. Yeah, I, I had someone referred to me today. He was asking what he should do with the payment that, that I believe it, it was also for his mother. And I, I kind of laid out the pros and cons and, and was saying that it was a gray area. And he, he seemed pretty intent on returning the payment and, and worried about fraud. So I, I wasn't going to get into an argument with him about it, but I, I would take the same approach with a client. I, I would, I would, you know, forthrightly, you know, lay out the pros and cons, the, the both sides, you know, because I, I think it is, you know, like many things in, in legal capacity, it, it is the client's decision what to do. And, you know, I, I think because of my own circumstances, I think, you know, my family is in a position to address this without putting any other taxpayer at risk. I, I understand. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not completely sure one way or another in that, you know, I, I certainly want to be compliant with the law and there, there's some arguments made that way, but you know, yeah, the, the statute does not read that way. And part of it, you know, and, and looking at the intent of Congress, it was to support taxpayers during this time and their families. So to me, you know, if if the main taxpayer is deceased, then, well, then why shouldn't it benefit their family? You know, that, that most everyone is, is in need at this time. So why not? You know, why, why not benefit a secondary person? I think all of those questions arise, William, and, and I think, you know, a lot of this has to do with how the regulation was announced and how it was developed. Normally, with any type of regulation, there would be a call for comments. Um, there would be a temporary uh, regulation in place, you know, prior to some finalization, and certainly... You know, uh, the LITC community has uh, has been quite vocal in expressing our opinions on various regulations over the years. None of that happened. You know, a lot of this, as you were saying, it seems like the intent of the statute, the intent of Congress, you know, is to provide relief and, and for families facing hardship. And I think any family that has lost a parent or, or you know, a taxpayer paying member of the family is going to face some, some hardship. There's additional expense. And then there is, you know, for, it was not the case for my mother, but, you know, a loss of income for the family. I think the question arises, what is the difference between a taxpayer who dies before the stimulus payment was released um, and a taxpayer who dies immediately after receiving the, the, um, the stimulus payment before he or she had a chance to spend it. I think all of those questions are, are worth addressing. And I think, you know, from my own point of view, we just happen to be in a position to address them. Yeah, I, I agree. And there, there are some of the other categories of prisoners and 
I, I believe non-resident aliens that that there are some of the the similar timing questions that that have appeared for each of them like what what is the time period for a prisoner who is required to to return their payment and you know to to some degree when with immigration status with resident aliens part of that is based on their time within the united states that you know, during this year, one one could change immigration status. So, exactly. You know, when when is a person required to to return it, and when are they not? You know, so right. so just having some FAQs on the IRS website, you know, really do not address the the nuances of of this topic. I, I agree. And I mean, some of that is understandable. Um, this, this was an emergency. Um, Congress acted quickly. Um, you know, but, but some of this, you know, was perhaps avoidable. I think over the last few years, we've seen a, a number of things, the, the TCJA being one and the PATH Act before that, that where Congress acted without very much or any input from the IRS in terms of the mechanics and logistics of, uh, of what they were enacting. And I think we've seen in, in the CARES Act, uh, you know, the same kind of not checking with the, the, the folks on the ground to, you know, figure out just which I's need to be dotted and which T's need to be crossed so that some of these things could have been, um, I think, avoidable. You know, it, 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 did Congress even consider whether or not to include or exclude prisoners or when to include resident aliens and when to exclude them? I, I, I suspect that there was little or no consideration of those things. For sure. And, you know, some of it in, in the discussion of these topics is, well, the the IRS treatment has, has been somewhat different from 2008 to, to 2020. So, you know, what, why the change? Right. And, and I think Nina, Nina Olson's um, article in procedurally taxing addressed, you know, many of those questions, you know, was there a change? <laughs> Not just why the change, but was there even a change? And, and it appears from the congressional side that there was no change, which I, again I think raises the question: What is the basis for the IRS or Treasury making a change on the administrative side? Well, they, these are are certainly great points that you bring up, and I would be interested in, in any updates on on what happens with with what you pursue. Um, I, I was going to bring up, you mentioned in an email that you've seen some developments in the private bar and um, especially in Chicago. So I was curious uh, what what thoughts you had on that topic. Um, I, th I, I think the, the private bar in Chicago seems to have you know, really stepped up in making itself available to the um, legal aid community in, 
in in very very important ways. And our pro bono panel right now we are working with area council's office to try to do some kind of virtual settlement process, perhaps not a settlement day as such, but um, you know some sort of process to enable uh, tax court petitioners to have their cases resolved or or at least started on the road to resolution even though the trial sessions are suspended and there, there's no you know uh, pending court date to, to motivate them uh, our pro bono panel has been you know very supportive of the settlement days when we've had them and they continue to be you know very supportive of new um processes for um, resolving cases and not just in the arena of the tax court several the the uh, EIP coalition that ladder up is part of that I mentioned earlier um, several of our pro bono panelists have you know come on board as volunteers who will respond to taxpayer questions when when people have questions or encounter difficulty trying to track down their payments that we've got a hotline established um, for them to call and that staffed by many of the, both the VITA volunteers and the clinic pro bono panelists who are, who are assisting. And I think that's, that, that's, you know, something that Nina Olson said years and years ago when she was the executive director at uh, Community Tax Law Project, that the um, pro bono bar is the lifeblood of the, the, the tax clinic program. And I think that's still true. And I think we see it in times of, of crisis like this when, when uh, attorneys and their firms step up and, and you know, put their resources at the disposal of the nonprofit community and the community at large. Very well said. Those those were the topics I wanted to cover, Paul. Were were there any other items that you wanted to bring up? That was pretty much everything that I had, so Okay. Well, well thank you for taking the time, Paul, and Well thanks for having you know, me. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate your service and hopefully get to, to see you again in, in Washington at the end of the year. That you know, would be nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That hopefully all of this stuff is behind us by then, but who knows? <laughs> who knows? You take care, William. <laughs> you too. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast. Providing monetary support for this podcast helps with expenses like equipment or travel to tax conferences. Supporting this podcast through Patreon comes with rewards, so check out our Patreon page. Please rate or review this podcast because positive reviews help get more people to know this podcast exists. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers of the people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as tax or legal advice. Consult with your own tax professional to provide you with specific advice on your situation. Tune in next time on Tax Justice Warriors for another interesting tax discussion.